0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Esen and this is episode 32. Today's episode is about R.B. Morey. R.B. More was a courageous and hardworking member of the Communist Party of India and he was also a Dalit and played a very influential role in the Dalit movement. So you have these two separate movements happening around the same time and R.B. More was the link between the two and that was a very special and rare position to be at which is why his memoirs that he wrote are very important and we can learn a lot from them. We'll be speaking with Anu Pamarao, who is the editor of R.B. Morey's memoir, and she has a book out called The Cast Question. So it's going to be a great episode. Before we start, I just want to announce that there is a now officially a Brown History newsletter that you can sign up to. It's like the Instagram feed, except it's a place where you can have in-depth stories and stories that are too long for the Instagram posts. If you want to subscribe, just visit www.brownhistorypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and let's get going. Here's episode 32. Of course, of Yo. course, yes.
1: Sorry, I didn't realize I'd done that, but now i will no. mute myself and wait.
0: Yeah, awesome. I have your book right here you know it's a great addition to my bookshelf uh but before we get started onto the life of rb Moore, i think we should kind of lay out the context of his world of of his background and and kind of get into that before we start talking about who he was and what he's his journey so i think probably the most important uh vital factor in this in his story is the caste system do you want to just kind of explain what the caste system is and how it plays into his life
1: sure sure awesome and uh, thank Thank you for having, having me here. Um, this was, um, and I'll, as we talk, uh, I'll, I'll mention a little bit about, you know, how I came into this project as well, uh, because it is, you know, I'm a historian and an anthropologist. I tend to um, not necessarily sort of just focus on a particular life history, and so clearly part of the question here that you're asking is, you know, why this is interesting and important. And one of the questions you'd asked me is, you know, why I keep uh, talking about the cast question. Um, Yeah. And which is the title of your last book.
0: Yes. Yes. So what is the cast question? What is the question? Because it comes up a lot in the book.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, No. And thanks so much for picking up on that. So, you know, I was thinking a little bit about... um, Um, how to kind of open up and parse this this question, because I think it's really at the heart of both the um, translation of Arby More's sort of autobiography and the biography that his son writes uh, about his entire life. Uh, But the caste question is also, as you said, sort of at the center of uh, the work that I've been doing. So now um, caste itself, I think, allows us to tell the history of the subcontinent and especially sort of modern South Asian history in quite particular ways. So I call it the political unconscious of society. You know, what do I mean? Uh, I think caste structures are social relationships, our relationships with each other. Um, It guides intimate relationships of marriage, who we eat with, who we sleep with. It justifies, it provides sort of a structure of impunity for forms of intimate and structural violence. I think many of us have been reading about some of the really um, barbarous, heinous cases of um, Dalit women being assaulted, sexual violence and violation against um, Dalit women. But it's not just that. There are broader structures of violence and violation, economic discrimination, ongoing uh, marginalization social political economic you know so caste sort of provides a justifying structure for all of that now it also is a legal identity today and it's a political identity so as I said, it, you know, it controls and caste itself kind of justifies an occupational order, what you do. So I think many of us know, and we know from sort of social science, uh, social studies uh, classes, maybe in high school and stuff, if you say, what is caste, uh, what people throw back at you is the textual order of caste, right? What it is, what it ought to be. And that is sort of Brahmins, ritual specialists on top. Kshatriyas, the warrior castes, uh, right, engaged in kind of military activity, but these were also what today we call dominant castes. They control access to land, material resources, and so on. Then we've got uh, the Vaishyas, the mercantile castes. And then you have a large swath of, and the majority, in fact, who are the shudras, that is the castes who perform agrarian and artisanal labor. These are your peasants, your peasant farmers. They're the ones who are um, barbers. They are um, ironsmiths and so on. So that's kind of the way that we think about caste. But, you know, caste has also changed a lot. Um, so in two important moments, and then I'll uh, I'll let you jump in again. There were two important moments uh, where caste really changes in quite profound ways. For me, I'm a modern historian. Uh, I study sort of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, and in this period, one important moment is colonialism, British colonialism, and the census that was put in place by British colonizer col- uh, colonizers and colonial officials. And what that did was really uh, to what we call bureaucratized caste. It made caste into a political and a social identity to the exclusion of a number of others. So if earlier you also thought of yourself as someone who lived in the Deccan, somebody who lived in Karnataka, let's say, or in South India, or in parts of the United you know, Provinces in Uttar Pradesh, what is today Uttar Pradesh, caste ends up creating a kind of homogeneous structure across India. Are you Brahmin? Are you, you know, and so what that does is to create this as a bureaucratic identity. It enables or it entitles you to receive social entitlements from the state, early forms of what we would call affirmative action, quota systems and so on. So that would be one important moment where caste really changed under uh, British colonialism. The second important moment is with the Indian constitution in India um, after, you know, 1950 in particular, where certain castes, the outcasts, what today would be called the Dalits and the scheduled tribes, Adivasis, first peoples are named in the constitution as um, kind of subjects and objects of historical justice. Right, as people who have suffered historical discrimination. So they're named in the Constitution as being entitled to um, certain kinds of recognition, social policies, and so on from the state. So that's broadly speaking, sort of caste and the caste question.
0: How does caste experiences vary from different regions you know how does the politics of different regions affect caste and i think from there we can talk about how what is the connection between bombay and and the lits and the history of the lits, and how is the history of bombay connected to the, the Lit population
1: yeah that's uh, that um that is um You know, one can say a lot about it, but uh, it's also the focus of my own work, because as you know, I work in Western India and I came into the More book through working on um, the question of uh, sort of Dalits and the transformations around the practices of untouchability in particular. And I ended up working on Biaram Bedkar, again, you know, a constitutionalist, considered uh, the architect of India's constitution. Uh, which is in, in many ways a radical document, how it's uh, implemented is a different question, but it's a quite radical document. And so, you know, in terms of how caste works uh, regionally, now caste historically has had uh, a link with control over land.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's related with questions of kingship, that is people who rule uh, people, as well as populations, as well as land and territory. And so, castes are distinct or regionally distinct. Uh, Again, you know, I hate to throw another like technical term at you, but, you know, when we think about, when I talked about the social studies, you know, kind of understanding of caste, this would be what um, academics would call varna. Varna meaning a kind of pan-Indian order, textually uh, prescribed, right? It appears in texts. Now, as I said, caste on the ground is quite different, and it has a very complicated history. And those histories are also regional histories. And again, uh, the the technical term for that, regional castes is called jati, which is to say caste clusters. So actually you will find uh, that across India, you have distinct castes that are found in particular places. You will find Gaudas, for instance, in what is today Karnataka in South India. You will find Reddis and kammas. Again, these are dominant castes who have had a long history of controlling land and resources. You'll find reddies and kammas in what today would be the state of Andhra Pradesh. Um, okay. Uh, you will uh, again find various, quote unquote, untouchable castes who are specific to certain regions. Okay, so the region that I worked in, in Western India, had a predominance of two uh, untouchable castes, outcasts. one called the Mongs and the other called the Mahars. And there's kind of internal tussle between these uh, castes as well, right? But um, if we start then thinking about how regional histories of caste actually, um, generate very particular ways that we approach caste and understand caste, I could say that in the region that I work on in Western India, we see something really quite extraordinary that happens. This is a region uh, that has a long history of anti-caste activism. That is folks who are actively challenging this complicated caste order that I've been talking about, political, economic, social, legal, (laughs) existential. It's about who you are, what you do, who you eat, who you sleep with. And we have a very long history and in the modern period, certainly across the 19th and the 20th centuries, we have people who are making a push for radical equality. That is to say, we are against caste hierarchy. We refuse social distinctions of caste. And we want to think about Equality and democracy, but like uh, in any place, so think about the question. You know, think about race in the U.S. Right? The only way you can imagine substantive equality in the United States is to get at the question of both immigration and then the question of race and racism. So every imagination of equality actually demands that you understand inequality, right? And so caste becomes that form of inequality, right? and difference that has to be addressed if you're going to think about democratic equality in a kind of modern framework. So my own work uh, until I focused on Arbi More and uh, worked with a, a good friend and a colleague who translated Arbimore's autobiography, I've been looking at the work of Biaram Bedkar,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, bedkar again, interesting figure he studied yeah. My university. He was at Columbia University from oh, wow. 1913 to 1916. Um, he then went and studied at the London School of Economics. Probably um, in late colonial India, the most educated, the most decorated, you might say, um, activist, anti-colonial, and radical thinker that we have had. Um, for uh, colonial and late colonial India, yeah, and my work, you know, in the caste question was actually focused on thinking about the movement he led for Dalit rights. Yeah, and a big risk argument, again, like African American political thinkers and philosophers, is we think the problem of equality from the very bottom up. If the outcast can't find equality, can't find equal recognition, cannot find civil and political rights, then democracy is meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. So you think from the bottom, you think from the position of the most subaltern, the most destituted, the most marginalized of the social order, in order to think most substantively of what equality should be. And so, the caste question for me, and I think you had sort of said, you know, why do you keep calling this the caste question? Uh, the caste question for me is therefore really the fundamental question of how we understand modern India today. Without understanding this long, complicated history of caste and the way that caste has enabled social movements for equality and um, redress against uh, historical discrimination we actually can't understand our modern political, social and economic life, right? So um, when, I, when I call it the caste question, I was drawing, you know, it's, it's a question that has no resolution. There is no answer yeah.
2: to this, right? Yeah.
1: Caste morphs as social conditions morph. It's like saying, you know, there's no end to racism right? Racism transforms. It's different in Jim Crow. It's different post-1965. It's, you know, it exists with Black lives and beyond. Mm -hmm. But racism, the ways in which our social relationships with each other lead to practices of prejudice, of exclusion, uh, of non-recognition, those continue. And You know, we're all very smart. (laughs) The social order is very smart in reproducing these forms and practices of exclusion. So when I call it the caste question, it's actually addressing this issue. There's no final question, uh, you know, answer to this question. The question keeps being framed again and again and again. It's like the woman's question. Or for me, when I uh, wrote the caste question, I was very influenced actually by Marx's Jewish question. It's a text that is written in 1843, excuse me, and it is published in 1844. Mm -hmm. And there Marx asks this question of how do we deal with religious differences in a modern order where everybody is presumed to be equal? What mechanisms do we have to recognize difference when we're all supposed to be Equal <laughs> to each other. And he comes up with a quite interesting, and again, you know, I have a kind of uh, critique and an engagement with it. But the argument there that he poses is what do we do with social difference, people who are different, but who claim equality? The woman question is the same thing, right? Recognize my difference, recognize that I have been excluded because I am seen to be different. But Let's find ways in which I am rendered equal to you. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of a, let's call it, it's called a paradox, a contradiction, a conundrum, a dilemma. How does uh, an order that thinks about equality address the question of difference? And caste in India became a kind of fundamental form of difference, but also of social inequality.
0: Yeah. It was Bombay, the hub of the anti-caste movements at the time, because RB More goes to Bombay and that's most where most yeah. of his life is spent and most of his activism is made. So in regards to that, yeah. how is the history of Bombay connected with the Dalit community?
1: Sure um, you know Bombay I mean in in Western India there are many places what today we would consider even you know small villages and so on that had uh, very radical pasts of anti-caste activism okay but Bombay indeed becomes very important uh, not just for um, South Asia it was probably the most important port city for the British right the British Empire. Now, the history of Bombay is really interesting. It's again connected with the history of the United States. Bombay, modern Bombay rises in the context of the American Civil War and the blockade on cotton in, uh, in the South. And this is the period that we see Bombay coming uh, into its own. And so the cotton economy, which connects kind of, you know, the British, the America, you know, North America and India is part and parcel of why Bombay becomes so important. But Bombay in the 19th century into the 20th century was um, a place where there were a lot of what we might call indigenous capitalists, right? Not just British bringing money and pumping money into the empire, but we have Parsis. We have people from various Gujarati communities, Hindu and Muslim, who have long histories of trade, of engaging in trade across the Indian Ocean and so on. And from all of them, Bombay is a kind of hub. So where Bombay the money is, basically. Where the money is, absolutely, right? right? So Bombay becomes a city of money and machines, okay? <laughs> New machines, you know, that is uh, the, the railways are very crucial for uh, Bombay, but also many other colonial cities, um, trams, uh, the world of kind of electricity and lights and so on. So Bombay really was a modern industrial hub. It was an industrializing center uh, when Arbi More comes to this place. Um, I can say a bit about Arbi More, but I thought I could uh, read a bit for you as well in his yeah. own Tell me when.
0: Yeah, I mean now, I mean, now would be a good time. So who, right, right. who is Arby More and why should we care what he what sure. he's done, what he's up to basically? And um maybe maybe talk about his upbringing, you know, who we what 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 formed him to be who he is. And uh yeah, take it away.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Um, you know, I read and I can I'll say a little bit about how I came to work on Arby More and what makes him interesting, both in terms of his own life, but also what we ended up doing with uh, translating his autobiography and writing a kind of introduction to to his world and his life. You know, I read R.B. More's autobiography in Marathi when I was working on my book, um, which was published in 2009, The Cast Question. And I found this book fascinating. And this is because it's a work, even in Marathi, it's a two-part work. There is his autobiography and then his son, uh, writes his father's life. Mm-hmm. And I was a good friend um, of his grandson, Subodh Mori. Mm-hmm. And it was that world of kind of, you know, uh, intellectual life and engaging with people when I was doing my own research in Bombay that brought Arbi More's work to my attention. Right. It's a right. rare autobiography. We have um, few autobiographies of the sort that we find uh, for Arbi More and his life. He was very, very active in the Dalit movement, the early Dalit movement, the early Ambedkar movement. He was um, a very important colleague of Ambedkar's. And then in 1930, he becomes a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Yeah, and embraces a, a, another idea of equality and i thought actually this this uh, connection and contradiction between somebody who uh, was both an ambedkarite very interested in the caste question and then started taking up the question of class and became a a um, communist but always in, with a in a very deep tension with the communist party and communist politics also. Because they refused to engage the question of caste.
0: We'll get into that
1: after. And he fought from within, right? So that's what made this um, autobiography come biography really interesting to me. Um, He's born in 1903, he dies in 1972. Um, He was urged just before he passed away to write his autobiography. The autobiography ends in 1924 and it ends right on the cusp of the first major civil rights struggle that's undertaken by Ambedkar, which is the Mahard Satyagraha of 1927, which lays claim to civil rights, the right to take water from a public tank.
0: We'll talk about that after too.
1: And so (laughs) this is, you know, so the life sort of ends, you know, actually just as things are getting going on the ground. Right. And then his son kind of, you know, completes his life. This is a red family across three generations. And I thought that was really interesting. So when we started sort of translating the work, um, I was thinking about this and you've talked about the world of Bombay. I was really thinking about the ways in which the autobiography reflects and opens up access to kind of the world of um, urban subalterns in a way that we don't have access to for the early part of the 20th century. And that's what makes this work so um, interesting and rare, and and really sort of precious um, to me. And um, it's also the kind of language that More uses. I've called him in the book in my introduction. I've called him a kind of urban dandy, by which I mean
0: urban that, you know, dandy.
1: Yes, and, of and a flâneur, right? And this is a term that's drawn from um, Walter Benjamin, who talks about the ways in which the nineteenth the nineteenth century cities. He's thinking about Paris in particular, but we could think about Bombay too. That the city was leading to a kind of radical opening, newness of social possibilities. What does someone like Benjamin? you know, have in mind, what did I have in mind? Well, the urban space allows you to traverse social differences. It allows you to move across neighborhoods. Trams, trains, buses are permitting movement across social classes, across social distinctions, right? And More totally embraces this. And one of the things that I'm arguing is that the city makes the man, if you will, as much as the man brings a very new understanding to the city. Dalits who moved, uh, he's part of a movement, a broader movement of Dalits who came to the city. There's a 66% rise of outcast communities of different uh, untouchable castes who come, largely Mahar though, who come to Bombay from the surrounding regions. Mm-hmm. They are the ones who are involved in what we would call sort of public works. That is, they're sanitation workers, they're conductors on trams and trains, they're working as railway workers. So there's a so lot of
0: opportunity financially for Dalits for coming in from around India.
1: They are, there is. Um, and so they experience the city as a place of new possibility, but the city also becomes a place of new forms of spatial segregation. Hmm. So that's kind of, you know, why More's, you know, rare autobiography also gives us a sense of this experience of the city as kind of uh, Janus-faced, if you will, right? Right. It's opening up these possibilities, but it's also making you very aware in new ways about being an untouchable, about being an outcast. So that's kind of what I was trying to um, draw attention to.
0: So you have, you have Bombay, which is kind of this rising city with lots of money and financial opportunity and, and any dreams. It's like the American dream, like anything's possible.
2: Yes.
0: And then you have this movement that's the that are people fighting against caste and against caste discrimination. But you also have another movement happening around the same time, which is the Communist Party. What, what's going on with that? And what role are they playing in Bombay? And what do they want? And, and what, are, what, are, what are the things that they are doing? After this, I want to talk about how they're connected. But right now, I want to kind of define each one on its own.
1: Sure, sure. So we've talked about sort of the Ambedkar movement and this long history for working for caste rights. Now, the communist movement, again, you know, Bombay, because it was a city, not just of money and opportunity, but it was an industrializing center. So it's a city of labor as well as capital. Right. right. So most of the people coming into the city now and the textile mills, we haven't talked about the textile mills uh, as well, together with the railways that are there, and the textile mills are very significant. Right? right. So From the 1850s onwards, many of these ind- uh, indigenous capitalists <laughs> that I spoke about, they're plunking their money into textile mills and textile production. So Bombay was part of a kind of, you know, very important, you know, second order uh, uh, economy, industrializing economy, where textile mills were the kind of primary, not just industries, but they transformed the city, the urban landscape. Because life was organized, especially in the urban areas of Bombay, what today would be called South Bombay, um, you would have the textile mills, the architecture of the mill, and then the places around the mills, charles, tenements, where mill labor lived, this is the architecture of the changing city,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? You can think about London (laughs) and industrializing London. You could think about Paris also as a city of labor. So all of these industrial areas. And so communism uh, and a certain branch or a brand you could say of kind of Indian communism is very drawn to Bombay. This is where the workers are. This is where you're gonna mobilize them and say, listen, think about labor and exploitation. And the Indian Communist Party had actually been formed in Tashkent uh, in Eurasia in uh, what would be the broader Soviet Union in 1924-25. And uh, for Indian communism, Bombay, Madras in the south, also another major uh, textile area, and then Kanpur in North India, which also had important leather works, would be three important areas for communist organizing. And uh, a lot of the major British communists, Philip Spratt and others, would come to Bombay because they saw this as a place for recruiting uh, uh, members of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And you also have a number of um, uh, South Asians in Bombay who are very drawn to communism. This is where the interesting contradictions also come in. Um, Ambedkar, for instance, who has a very interesting relationship, awkward, complicated, he is sometimes organizing with the communists and the uh, members of the workers and peasants party. And at other times, and largely, he calls the Indian communists a b- bunch of Brahmin boys, mm. because most of them were upper caste. Okay, they're the ones who are the theoreticians of the party. I see. Arbimore is a kind of foot soldier. But... More is the one after 1930, who's working with construction workers. He is bringing in, um, new. he's working with municipal workers. And he's the one who's creating links between outcast communities, the laboring castes, and an imagination of communism as a new utopia. So it's a very complicated and unresolved history. Again, think about what's happening in the US in the 1920s and the 30s with black Marxism and black communists. And you keep it, and, and please remember that, you know someone like Du Bois in Black Reconstruction, written in 1935, talks about the white and the black proletariat. And his imagination, his utopia, is how can we bring these folks together? What we know, is that white workers did not embrace the black proletariat, right? And they embrace instead their whiteness, which Du Bois calls a psychological wage. Mm. It's something that allows you to feel socially superior, even and if this, you're alongside. And, and it, this is like caste in India. This is
0: like this was the, this was the pretty much similar to what was going on with the Communist Party. Same concept, same not concept, but same. Uh, issues yeah
1: you could use the analogy i think yes very well okay very well
0: because i know that some i read in the book that uh Ambedkar didn't want to work with anybody that felt any pity towards caste what what does he mean by that and and can you know what does that mean because i th- i think that's really interesting and i want people to hear that
1: yes um You know, Ambedkar, um, unlike Gandhi, so when you talk about pity, the person that we immediately think about is Gandhi, who perhaps has, and we know his name, he's kind of globally seen as um, important in terms of his understanding of nonviolence and so on. And Gandhi amongst the upper caste sort of reformers was most engaged with the question of untouchability, but, he also renames the outcast communities as Harijans, right? that is, people of God. Mm-hmm. And he wants to keep them within Hinduism. And when Amritkar is talking about pity and the condescension of the upper castes, he very largely, especially in the 1930s and after, has in mind someone like Gandhi. Gandhi says at some point, you know, I, um, I within myself can represent the untouchables. Ambedkar's is a resolute no, and it is an argument about self-respect, about dignity, and about remaking your community on your terms, demanding political rights and equal recognition, not to play a subsidiary role within Hinduism. So this becomes really, really interesting. And, you know, that's why I said, you know, caste itself is so complicated, right? It has a religious basis, it's economic, and it's a number of other things. And, um, and this is why in 1956, shortly before he passes away, Ambedkar um, also converts out of Hinduism into Buddhism. So the yeah. pity question is also a question of what is the relationship between outcasts, caste and Hinduism? and second the political question do we struggle on our own terms for political economic rights and for social dignity and equal participation or do we get folded into a pit, you know a pity party <laughs> if you will yeah. and are we going to be condescended to by somebody who yes is extremely radical i think you know gandhi was very radical on the question of caste but he faces his limit Right. He's representing someone else. Ambedkar says, we need to represent ourselves. And this is why he is such an extraordinary figure in the history of global thinking about radical democracy. Okay, and this I want everybody to hear as well. That is
0: amazing. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, can,
1: can I can I read a couple? Of sure, things? of course. Do if, you yeah. mind? Is no, no, because, not at all. You know, you, oh, to God. get a sense of you know, it speaks to so many of these wonderful questions that you've been asking about you know who is More and how does he experience the city. So uh, let me just read a couple of things in his own words. Is that okay? from yeah, just, The introduction. Yeah. Just give us some
0: context that? of the of the passage sure. you're reading, and then yep. take it away.
1: Yep. So oh, and a couple of really interesting things. Um, you know, so so More. Um, when he's a child is is um, and I, I was also very drawn to this when I was reading his, his book in Marathi and I came across something that is rather extraordinary. And I think, again, people wanna hear about. He is a child who um, comes into learning. He goes to school and he um, goes to take exams Uh, for higher education, for higher learning. And you were supposed to go into the Bombay government administered these exams in Alibag, which today is a kind of, you know, resort for the rich and the famous. It's right outside of Bombay, you take a ferry and go there. And he writes about the fact that as an untouchable student, he could not sit with the other students in the classroom to take this exam. He sits outside the classroom the papers are flung at him because you're not supposed to touch an untouchable, right? Terrible. Untouchable. Yeah. And he sits outside and he sits and he takes this exam and he comes in first.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: He becomes the scholarship student for the Bombay government. And then uh He is a young man. This is, you know, he's 10, you know, between 10 and 12 or thereabouts. Um, The local school won't allow him in, even though he is a scholarship student, um, in order to continue his learning. And he writes a lot about what it means for him to sit outside the classroom and study. And that's how he learns. That's how he learns both English and Marathi. And uh, then at some point, um, he talks about coming to Bombay for the first time. And I thought I would read from this. So he comes to Bombay initially en route to Alibag with an uncle to take those exams where, you know, he becomes a scholarship student who can't enter the classroom. Let me read out just a couple of things from there. And I'll, you know, uh, I'll mention a few things where he really gives us a feeling about what Bombay was like at the time. So in describing this first visit to Bombay at the age of 11, Arbimore says, for the first time in my life, I saw railway trains, motorboats, brightly shining electric lights in buildings and on the roads, cars, horse carriages, the rattling of trams, the signs of ships and the textile factories, people wearing all kinds of different costumes, enormous hotels and restaurants serving drinks and food, bars for alcoholic drinks and toddy, markets selling fish, meat, vegetables, and flowers, shops and markets selling clothes, shops selling silver and gold. I had this chance to see Bombay because I had come for the examination in Alibag. Later on, he talks about, and uh, this might also again be important to your point, Asan, about how did the Communist Party react or respond to its uh, lower level cater? Yeah, yeah. And let me read this out. And this is, you know, he's much older. He's actually underground. He's a member of the Communist Party. The bo- party was banned by the British. It was um, seen to be treasonous. It uh, challenged the the sovereignty of the Queen, uh, who was also quote unquote King Emperor, mm-hmm. <laughs> interestingly. And so he's underground. And let me read this out to you. This is from much later in his life. Um, and the son, Arbi More's son Satyendra More is a child and records an especially poignant account of his family that's been thrown out of their home, sitting under Elphinstone Bridge with all their belongings because they have been evicted because they couldn't pay their rent. Here is this uh, section, the upper caste leadership of the communist party chances upon the par- uh, on this family in this desperate situation. And I'm quoting from Arbi More here in the translation. D.S. Vaidya, one of the members of the party, the, uh, K, the the central command, you could say, asked me, Datta Kelkar, another upper caste member of the CP, the Communist Party, isn't that woman sitting under the bridge, the wife of Arbi More? I know Arbi More very well, but I had never met his wife or seen her. Several beggars used to take shelter under that bridge. Why should Arbi More's wife be sitting there? As I was thinking thus, Vaidya called out in a concerned voice, hey it's her, it's she. We both approached her. Next to her there were two or three tin boxes, a sack with cooking pots, and a little boy. The lady told us we had not paid the rent, had we? So the bailiff from the court threw us out. My husband has now gone to look for another room. Until then, I will wait here. Vaidya could not hide the tears that came into his eyes. Again, gives you a sense of the life of penury, of kind of destitution that Mori embraces for the life of the party. But I think this is also such a telling example of that contradiction. <laughs> the Brahmin boys who had the party yeah. and the hater, cater because these folks come. And, you know, Arbi More's family, because of his sacrifices for the party, experienced this kind of homelessness many times. It's not, this is not the only time. And so you begin to get a sense of the city, right? The city is you know glamorous, it's open. There's all kinds of possibilities. There's newness that uh, More as a kid experiences. But his family and his child who's writing about this are also experiencing extreme destitution, deep privation because of the father's political choices, and because he is someone who's not, you know, who's who's not a kind of party high command. So the family embraces this kind of homelessness. Uh, It embraces the fact that, you know, the the father is underground. Um, and, And I think this gives you a sense of also the contradictions about caste and class at this time. And, uh, you know, I'll I leave it there. There's lots else in this uh, autobiography and the kinds of descriptions he talks about, you know, how he would go and find work in the docks. Mm-hmm. He would be a daily wage worker. Uh, if you stood in the docks, even if they didn't give you a job, they gave you a few paisa. And he would do that. He works as a porter. He, uh, Arbimore, when he's young, writes about sleeping in parks because he's homeless Uh, writes about you know going into restaurants and eating and running away before they can you know be asked to pay so that's what I meant also by this idea of the urban dandy the city suddenly opens up all these possibilities and Mora is meeting all kinds of people and I think that's how he also comes into communist uh, politics
0: right before he joins the communist politics what role did he play in um, in the struggle against caste. I know that he, you know, we can talk about, an example is the Mahad Satyagraha of 1927. What was, can you elaborate on what that is and what his role was in all this? And then we yeah. can talk about his role in the Communist Party after.
1: Yes, sure. Um, so, you know, from the time he's a young child, Arbi More, when he's living, he's living in a place uh, in the Konkan, just outside of Bombay, where many Dalit workers came from. Because he's one of the few people in his community who can read and write, um, from early on, he talks about, and, you know, this is as like a young person, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, Dalits would would come in and near the bus station and so on. They wouldn't be allowed to take water. You know, they couldn't find sources. So he actually sets up like a little hotel (laughs) near the bus stand. This is a young, you know, this is like a child, right? And he says, hey, listen, you know, our people don't, uh, they're not even given water when they come in. They can't go into a hotel and ask for water. They're, you know, drinking from separate cups. We know that that exists to this day and so on. So he has been um, quite the activist. And in fact, Arbi Morey in the Concern had taken on a kind of civil rights satyagraha, laying claim to a public water tank which becomes the kind of um, prehistory to the Mahar Satyagraha of 1927. And he played a very, very big role in the Mahar Satyagraha. He wanted, and, you know, in uh, 2425, the colonial government uh, opens public uh, resources like tanks and other spaces to all the castes. And they do this sort of saying that, you know, people, you know, these are public, um, these are public goods. We should embrace public access. And uh, the Mahat Satyagraha itself and cases earlier, they become like a kind of test case where you go in and you say, these places have been opened up. Let's go and see if we can actually take access, you know, uh, to or lay claim to public access to these tanks. So the Mahat Satyagraha in 27 happens in March and again in December. And Mahat is a small town in the Konkan. There is this public uh, water source, but it's attached. It's right next to a temple Mm -hmm. and Ambedkar goes and there's a huge movement mobilizing Dalits. And this was also seen as a way of making um, Dalits uh, conscious of their rights. So, think of this almost like a Rosa Parks. You know, it's very much like a sit in, right? Yeah. Let's actually do this to bring our community together and to create a kind of political identity for them. Yeah. So, when Ambedkar goes the first time, he's egged on and he's really encouraged by Arbimore. To come in, and then others. There's Avi Chitre and a couple of other local um, supporters. These were upper caste supporters of the Ambedkar movement, the early Dalit movement, and the Ambedkar movement. Um, he is uh, brought in to Mahard, and Ambedkar goes with a group of Dalit, and it's it's a multi caste group actually, social activists who go in and take water from the tank. Almost immediately, they're Attacked, a cry goes around Mahar that the ta- that the tank has been fouled, quote unquote, because untouchables have come in and they've touched the water, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a there's a scuffle, there's mm-hmm. violence against the people who've gone in to take water from the tank, and they have to disperse, and the upper castes in the town go in and sanctify the Mahad tank with urine and cow okay? That's Mm. what happens in March. And because this happens, there's a case that's filed in court. Ambedkar actually uh, is is involved in that legal case. He's a lawyer, don't forget, and and an important constitutionalist leader. He's trained as a lawyer. And then in December, he goes back with a larger group. And at this point, they do something even more incendiary, insurgent, and radical. And he's actually egged on again by this uh, multicast group of activists that stand behind him, including somebody called uh, Sahasrabudde, who's a Brahmin actually. And he's encouraged to not just take water and to go back and say, here we are again, you try to get rid of us, no way. But the Manusmriti, the so-called, you know, uh, text of ethics and law of Hindu law is publicly burnt. And Ambedkar basically is saying, you know, I reject the entire order of caste, which is given a kind of legal life by the Manusmriti. So that's the Maharsatya ground. Wow. <laughs> and uh, more is, is behind all of this. So uh, then,
0: it. yeah. So then more, uh okay, so let's just recap. There's, there's two movements. There's the Dalit the struggle, and then there's the Communist Party. They both have to get, you know, between each other, they both have this, complicated relationship but Arby More decides to join uh the communist party now how does Arby more navigate through the communist party when it's a movement that doesn't really uh give the caste question uh, the caste question isn't a pro isn't really a primarily primary concern of the communist party. So what changes does, or what what he tries to do in the communist party and what, and does this affect his relationship with Ambedkar and his movements? Does it, does it, or does he try to balance both or does he do a good job? There's a lot of mm. questions in here. Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no. He, you know, I think um, you've, you've kind of really gotten to the, to the nub of this contradiction, right? For somebody who is so far seeing is working on behalf of his community why does he move into communism? Why does he become a card-carrying
2: member yeah.
1: of the party? And you know, you can never really get at you know people's psyches and kind of you know why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he says at the time is that he wants to think about the question of equality and of human emancipation and so on, which communism opens up and makes possible and uh he writes himself, and his son, who writes the biography of more's life, which ends as i said in twenty four um basically writes that you know he goes and meets a bit good. in fact he more was um Involved and, and was a kind of lieutenant and was a major editor of Bahishkrit Bharat, the Outcast or the Boycotted India, which uh, is also one of uh, Ambedkar's early and major sort of newspapers. And uh, Satyendra More, the son, as well as Arbi More, tell us that More goes to Ambedkar and talks to him about having made this decision, and that Ambedkar sort of you know understands why he would do this. What we see for the rest of Arbi life, is that his focus is on untouchable laborers, construction labor, what we would think of as like precarious labor, construction labor, um, municipal workers, quote unquote scavengers, right? Who are performing um, various kinds of um, social hygiene, <laughs> if you will, for the city, right? They're the ones removing excreta and waste and so on, that he becomes very involved with them yeah and his focus always within the party is to keep telling the party listen you're not paying attention to the question of caste on its own terms and so he becomes and that's why again to your question you know what was so interesting about this person we this is one of the rare autobiographies that gives some hint of how somebody is trying to navigate Two ideas of human equality, two ideas of human emancipation, but those two ideas on the ground have a very complicated political and social relationship. Right? right, they almost seem to be at odds with each other. He, you know, navigates and he keeps bringing up the caste question throughout in the Communist Party. Do they listen? Off and on, um, they do. And, but, but, you know, I think we also see many, many instances like the one that I read to you. That's why I wanted to read that question, uh, a small um, anecdote of being sort of, you know, set out on the bridge and so on. I think there is a way in which the existential life world of being untouchable, of being lower caste, of being downtrodden, marginalized, destituted, that the Communist Party doesn't, you know, quite address that. They're theoretically thinking about how caste, which was seen as a kind of backward category, it's not modern, how they could modernize caste. The understanding of modernizing caste is to make it class. Mm -hmm. Listen, we don't, you know, you may be Muslim, you may be untouchable, you may be uh, coming from one of the Bahujan castes, right? The quote unquote Shudra castes and so on. But you leave that identity at home because you come into the workplace and we're all workers. We're all laborers, yeah. and what we do, we have strike action, we have Garao, we surround, you know, uh, mill owners and so on, and demand our rights. And Bombay was a very radical, militant working class city, right? And one of the things that I also sort of try to bring out in my introduction to the to the translated autobiography and biography is to say that it is the question of caste and caste labor and untouchable workers and Bahujan labor and so on, that actually inspires the political thinking of Marxism. So I wanna say this is a kind of forgotten history of the communist movement that's not even embraced by the movement itself except in bibs and bobs here and there.
0: Wow.
1: Right? But again, your question, you know, earlier you asked about regional histories in Telangana in what is today Andhra Pradesh, in South India, there are pockets where you had people like Arbi who were able to combine the question of caste and class and really bring them to the fore. Landless laborers, peasant agricultural workers who were involved in really major struggles for wages, for transforming feudal relationships in the countryside and so on. So we do have those histories as well. It's a very complicated history of caste and class, but also the kind of forgotten histories of the communist party. Um, So, you know, this is part of the, the caste class uh, relationships on the ground. This is part of the kind of secret, the fugitive, the forgotten history, I think of the communist party. And it's very contentious today because staunch Ambedkarites feel that, Communists were opportunistic in taking up the caste question. They did it when it served their interests, but they did not understand the life world of the untouchables, right? And so it's become a very complicated issue today to even put forward this idea that there is this kind of Dalit communist whose utopias are around labor and they're around the body and untouchability and caste. So it's also like a kind of forgotten moment that, you know, we want to, or I would like to kind of think about, not with any, like the caste question, there's no answer to this. You don't come out on one side or the other. You don't say, well, you know, the Ambedkarites were right, the communists were absolutely wrong, the communists were right. I would probably stand on the side of the Ambedkarites, because they had a much more rich and grounded and... um, kind of profound understanding of what it means to imagine equality in a caste stratified society like India. Whereas in many ways the communists are bringing in, and this was also always the argument, they're bringing in an idea that comes from somewhere else, right? How do they make it Indian? How do you know, what is the history of Indian communism and so on? So lots of questions and I sent to also your point about, you know, it's not just about caste and about Dalits in the party. It's also about the history of Islam and of Muslim communists who were very, very important in the communist party of India, including in Bombay.
0: How, this, what was their role in the, in the communist party?
1: Oh, I mean, they're uh, very, very important. I mean, in, in uh, places like uh, East India and Bengal and so on, Muzaffar Ahmed, some of the early Marxists, I won't even call them, you know, this is a moment when sort of the idea of Marxism is becoming uh, institutionalized as an idea of the party. Mm-hmm. And um, Muslim Marxists were deeply involved in, in the party. Um. Uh, I also think that, like someone like Arbi More, they bring with them a much more nuanced, vernacular, rich, life world experience oriented understanding of what Marxism could become and what communism could be in India. Many of them are channeling ideas uh, from Islam of ethical behavior, of equality of uh, forgetting about distinctions of caste, of remaking new notions, new ideas, excuse me, I should say of community. But they're also channeling ideas drawn, as I said, from Islam, from other heterodox, you know what we would today think of as kind of religious ideas. They're infusing this early thinking of equality with those ideas. And that's why it's so complicated. You know, it's so complicated. And that's why I say I probably stand on the side of the Ambedkarites mm-hmm. <laughs> in how you come into communism rather than coming from communism and trying to think about what we do with caste.
0: A lot of the issues during RB Mori's life still exist today. What do you think we could learn from, from his life, from his autobiography in today's day and age?
1: I think the autobiography of someone. Like Arbi More and also his son and his grandson, as I said, who's a good friend of mine, who was deeply involved. I mean, I thought about translating this with a friend of mine and a colleague, Vandana Sonalkar, who actually did the translation of the biography, the autobiography, because I knew More's grandson, and he introduced me to this life world of bombay and and you know we would go out and he introduced me to journals from the time and so on so he is as much a not just a collaborator he is like a co co-traveler in every sense in this book and i think what we see here is an individual's struggle to lead a politically meaningful ethical life and how much he was connected with his community. You know, he lives always, as, you, as I've mentioned, he's always living on the edge. The family moved to Goringao just before he passed away and they got something like a 200, 220 uh, square foot sort of uh, built up home, a kind of formal house. Uh, this is uh, not anything. So this is somebody who also embraces that kind of austerity who completely gives himself up for his community. And it's, um, I I think we have to learn from this because it gives us a sense of who we could be in terms of our better selves. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a sense of what it means to completely involve yourself in the life of a community and to bring about change from within. He's dealing with people who don't know how to read. One of the most important ideologues, quote unquote, of the movement, uh, who was discovered by R.B. More is someone called Arnabao Sate. He was a performer in the Communist Party. That is to say, they performed, um, you know, music. Street plays, or oh, music, street plays music. music, most importantly, right? Arnabao Sate was a construction worker, came into Bombay, is discovered and is organized by Arbimore. The story goes that Anabaw Sate who is completely literate, learned to read by reading the advertisements around him in Bombay. Wow. Extraordinary voice. He's the one who brings the music of the movement out. So, Moris' life also tells us that you know the people who actually populated the movement, who gave it what I will call a kind of poetry, poetic speech, sound, song, brought in people who were unlettered. They were not illiterate. They were unlettered. But these were people who actually had the experience of exploitation. They had the understanding of exclusion, of destitution. And this is somebody who's kind of giving that community voice, right? And he is representing them. Again, to your question about Ambedkar, you know, pity and condescension, you represent yourself. We're fellow travelers, you know, we provide, you know, um, solidarity, we commemorate that history, um, we remember it and make sure that it's not forgotten. And I think that's maybe the role of uh, like an academic like myself, an upper caste academic like myself, I should say.
0: Awesome. This was, uh, I think that's all the time we have. And this was a great episode. Is there anything you want to add in? Do you want to talk about anything you want, future projects?
1: No, no. no? Um, I would like to, you know, I mean, I, I you want to add in something. I will. I just want to, you know, mention or highlight the, Um, the kind of radical histories of caste that we inherit on the subcontinent, Mm -hmm. Um, the importance of going back and reading someone like Ambedkar, who's a complicated thinker. He's not just a movement activist, but he's a very complicated thinker, contradictory, you know, we have to historicize his thought and so on. Um, The third is for me that this interwar period in the 20th century was a period of a lot of opening where these kinds of ideas could collide, radical anti-caste ideas, communism, and so on. Um, You know, we're in such a different moment today. Yeah. Many people are challenging the history of, you know, civil rights. uh, Many of us are ourselves historical beings, right? When I teach students, you know, most of them have grown up after, you know, 2001 and the war on terror. They live and they've grown up as American students um, in a period of permanent war, right? And I will make a kind of plug also for doing a certain kind of history, doing a certain kind of anthropology that you know, our work has some value if we can open up other ways of thinking, other ways of being, and maybe other ways of, of challenging this really I think despairing present (laughs) that we seem to be in politically too and to create or to think about new kinds of solidarity and uh, I think that's really about it
0: awesome great thank you so much Uh, I'll let you know when this is released probably very soon this week